The Trouble with Transformation, a serialised podcast by Alison Whip. Chapter 26, Luton in the Lab. Do you have a favourite food, Dad? I always picture you as a seafood lover. Probably because I have dim memories of you, Cat and me, sitting at a salt-pocked table at the edge of Croyd Bay, watching the pale grey waves roll in, eating fish and chips and fighting off chihuahua-sized seagulls as they swooped. I screamed so hard the first time it happened. You laughed and swatted them away. Rats with wings, you called them. Cat and I still love our fish and chips. We'll get them on a Friday night and watch the last of the surfers straggle in. The seagulls will have their go, but the bottlenose variety are tiny by comparison. They're nothing to the flies. But I guess a takeaway fry-up isn't exactly seafood, which is what we had at the Janssen's. Betty wasn't lying. Mrs Blanche really can cook. Her coconut tempura prawns are to die for. Mr J joined us for a bit, laughing at his own jokes, dropping vague hints about the things he was working on. Then he hoovered up his food in what seemed like an inhaled breath and was gone. Back to the lab. Mrs Blanche seamlessly moved on to dessert. She cracked out the fruit, strawberries and raspberries, drizzled with chocolate and a scoop of ice cream on the side. Mrs J entertained us with funny stories, mostly ones involving Mr J, his inventions that went wrong, and the press releases she'd cooked up to hide them. I laughed so hard, I got the hiccups and couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. Suddenly the Janssen's large white dining room felt airless, like a wave crashed over us and sucked out all the oxygen. This unexpected development, that I actually liked the Janssen's, complicated things massively. Betty's family was different. A bunch of oddballs, just like me and Kat. Only the Janssen's were also a proper family. I didn't know you could have it both ways. And now I was about to rope Betty into some harebrained mission. One that, if I was being honest, had a very slim chance of success. Rogue thoughts began to creep in. That maybe, just maybe, if we could confide in Mr and Mrs J, we could raise the odds of pulling off this mad scheme. It'd be nice if there was one adult in my life I could rely upon. Oh, but Dr Wilson had said, trust no one. There was just no risking it. It was nearly midnight by the time we wandered back to our rooms. Betty and I were still pretty alert as we headed to the bathroom to brush our teeth. Danny stumbled in the direction of his racing car bed, bleary-eyed. He was usually all tucked up by 9.30 on a school night. Aren't you even going to brush your teeth, you grot? I called after him. Danny shuffled back to the bathroom and gestured toward the tube of toothpaste in my hand. Hit me, he said, holding out his index finger. With a sigh, I squeezed a small blob of the paste onto his fingertip. Danny pointedly lifted finger to mouth and proceeded to make brushing motions back and forth across his teeth before turning and heading back to his room.
Betty and I exchanged a grimace as the door closed behind him. Two hours later, I was standing over Danny's bed, gently shaking him. Wake up, lazy lump! Danny squinted at the wall. The numbers on the Formula One lap monitor glowed. Zero, one, five, six. He rubbed his eyes and mumbled through sleep-drugged lips. So apparently 2am is the new lazy? I bounced on the bed, sending Danny's hair flying. This was no time for banter. Get up! Get up! Give me a moment, okay? He rolled onto his back, blew his fringe off his eyes, and nodded at my pyjamas. Nice pandas. I rolled my eyes and tugged the lapel of his PJs. You can talk, Iron Man. Fair call, Danny grinned. Then his expression grew serious. So, we're really doing this? We really are, I said, heart scudding against my ribs. Last night, while we'd brushed our teeth, I'd convinced Betty that we ought to take Mrs J's contact lens for a spin around her dad's lab. She hadn't taken much coaxing. A couple of midnight ice frappes at the ice cream parlour, the promise of clandestine adventure, and here we were. Danny exhaled and sat up. Okay, I really hope you know what you're doing. Come on, I said, tugging on Danny's elbow, determined to get on the move before his voice of reason killed our momentum. Let's go. Betty was waiting for us in the hall. Her grin was so wide she looked like a kid with a mouth full of hidden lollies. It's this way. Follow me, she whispered. She arched onto her toes and crept along the hall. What about the CCTV? Danny asked. Won't they see us? Betty and I exchanged a smug glance. We've just come from the control room. The cameras only alert security if they detect motion. Betty turned off the sensors and set the visual on a loop, I said. Mr J went to bed over an hour ago. We should be set. I looked round. The walls in this part of the house were whiter, more sterile looking. Not a pink unicorn in sight. Welcome to the heart of our house, Betty said, as we rounded yet another corner and entered yet another white hallway. But this particular hall ended at a narrow purple door. Betty reached into the pocket of her dressing gown and pulled out a small, clear, liquid-filled cylinder. She unscrewed the cap and withdrew a tiny transparent object, touching it to her left eye and gently massaging the nearby skin. Just as before, a green laser light briefly connected with the surface of the lens. There was a bleep, a click, and Betty pushed open the door. I turned to Danny. He was poised at the threshold, like a vampire waiting for an invitation. Are you ready for this? His mouth lifted in a lopsided smile. I can't promise what I'll do when I see all that high-tech stuff. Scrape me off the floor if I melt into a puddle of rapturous drool. We linked arms and stepped into the lab. Danny's eyes lit up. He looked at me expectantly. <sighs> Go on, I sighed. Explore. And with that, 
he was off. If only I was as easily pleased. I blamed the hollow, empty feeling in the pit of my stomach on having watched too many classic horror films at the Glitz. The lab was clinical in appearance, well organised. Aside from a number of impressive-looking machines, the bench tops were meticulously tidy, almost bare. I'd imagined a space cluttered with notebooks, teeming with half-empty cups of coffee and overrun with intricate wires. Where were the beakers filled with nuclear green liquid? The cadavers, strapped to lightning-powered contraptions. Okay, maybe I really didn't want to see one of those. The wall on my left was home to rows and rows of drawers, alphabetically marked and filled with this and that, bolts, knobs and screws. On the far-facing wall, shelves were stacked from floor to ceiling, filled with volumes of folders and journals. I shrugged. I should have known Mr J was less reanimator and more X-Men. The garage, his security system, the electrified moat, it said it all. I held your notebook in my hand and imagined what your lab would look like. Judging from the detailed notes with messy scribblings and the much-handled dog-eared pages, I pictured you keeping your workshop pretty much the way Cat keeps house. Pristine shelves and bench tops on the face of it, but drawers and cupboards stuffed to the brim with loose pages and half-built pieces. Mr J had no such tendencies. That much was clear as I watched Danny ferret around the lab. He left no corner unexplored, ducking under benches, poking his nose into perfectly organised drawer after drawer, cabinet after cabinet. This stuff is insane, he said to Betty, who smiled modestly. He pulled out something that looked like a revved-up can opener. This was only reviewed in The Verge last week. The military are supposed to be getting one later this year. How did you dart? Daddy has connections. Betty tapped the side of her nose and flashed an enigmatic smile. When it became obvious Betty wasn't going to reveal Mr J's source, I resumed exploring. Corridor on the left led to several smaller labs. They had possibilities. But the thing to really catch my interest was the heavy, tightly sealed door to the right. What's in there? I gestured toward the heavy door. Oh, that, Betty said. That's just the walk-in cool room. The main part is the fridge. It's for things that can be stored at four degrees, but inside there's also a minus 20 and minus 70 freezer for some of the more fragile stuff. Danny walked over to the door, turned the heavy handle and peered in. Hey, Betty, he waved his hand, beckoning her over. Know what'd be really cool? If we could get hold of some dry ice and run it under the tap, we could pretend to be mad scientists. Or rock stars, Betty said. I'm pretty sure Daddy has some stored in the minus 70. No sooner had she skipped into the cool room than Danny pounced on me. What's the plan? How are we going to convince her? I shrugged slipping your journal into the pocket of my dressing gown. I don't know. The truth? Got some? Betty ran into the lab, throwing a hard white lump up into the air. It landed in her newly gloved palm, and she tossed it up again like a hot potato. Curls of smoke wisped around her fingers. I really should have brought a tray. Here, I said, scanning the bench and grabbing a silver bowl from a set of electric scales. Toss it here. 
The lump of dry ice landed in the bowl with a thunk. Thanks, Betty said. Betty, I set the bowl on the bench top and patted the stool next to me. Can I tell you something? Something that may shock you. Betty stood her ground, cheeks suddenly pale. You're spies, aren't you? She looked from me to Danny. Daddy said they would stoop to anything. But planting kids at the school? Are you one of those adults who's really 21 but looks 13? Danny and I stared at her, open-mouthed. And we'd been paranoid about spies. I looked at Betty's hostile expression and started to laugh. I'm sorry, I said, as Betty's scale deepened. It's just so funny. We're all a bunch of nervous Nigels playing murder in the dark. Huh? I laughed again, but more nervously this time. We're not spies. We need your help. I gestured with my eyes at the bench tops, the silver polished machinery. And maybe we could borrow some of your dad's stuff? If it's okay with you. She was no longer scowling, but Betty was still eyeing us warily. Danny nudged my side. I think she needs to see the notebook. Of course. Right. I took a deep breath, reached into my dressing gown and placed your notebook in Betty's hands. What is this? she asked. I took Betty's elbow and gestured toward the empty stool. You'd better sit down. Betty's bottom had barely touched the oak seat before I started spilling the story. The appearance of the mysterious notes. The blueprints. Your machine. Every so often Danny would chime in, correcting the details, adding key facts. With unspoken agreement, we both omitted the part about Dr. Wilson's death. We didn't want to freak Betty out to the point where she was too scared to help us. So you see, I finished, you're the obvious choice. You must have picked up heaps of secret techniques from working with your dad. I can't think of anyone our age who could give this genius a run for his money. I leaned in and playfully shoulder-budged Danny. Betty sat across from us, stony-faced and pale. My smile faded. You... you won't help us? I fought to steady my voice. Betty stared at her hands, knotted in her lap. Her reply was little more than a croak. It's not that I won't. It's more that I can't. The air from the freezer tickled the hairs on my arms. My blood ran cold. I braced my shoulders waiting to hear the words from Betty's mouth, the reason why our mission was a fail. Instead, there was a bleep from above and the smooth suction sound of a door swinging open. As we turned our eyes upward, a shrill voice cast down. What on earth is going on in here?